Today, Dr. Richard Niles, composer, producer, songwriter, arranger, and of course, author. Many of the artists he has worked with, Paul McCartney, Pat Metheny, Ray Charles, Cher, Randy Brecker, Tina Turner, Michael McDonald, James Brown, Grace Jones, Mariah Carey, Pet Shop Boys, Tears for Fears, it goes on and on and on. And that might be enough. Yeah, I think that's more than enough. Uh, and he is also the author of uh, The Invisible Artist, which I really want to focus on today. And he has many other books as well, including his latest release, Adventures in Arranging, probably more uh, directed towards the musician per se. Hey, Dr. Ritchie, how are you? Very good to talk to you, Ron. Oh, it's always good to talk to you, Rich. Thanks for being here. Let's get into this thing on The Invisible Artist, because I think it's a great story on backstory and i think for fans of music in general whether they're musicians or not forget about it the public loves artists and we all know phil Spector, who of course now has just passed away and all the press and the worldwide global notes are saying you know phil Spector, who brought us and invented if you will the wall of sound we all know the wall of sound the very lush very wet sound on all of his great hits and later the george harrison the beatles used it uh, but i think you have made the note that phil Spector really wasn't the inventor or the creator of the wall of sound do you want to kind of get into this sure i, I think what a lot of people um most lovers of music but people who are not actually musicians themselves what people don't know is that um, it takes a, a team of people to create a record. And that is a fact which um, the record companies and the artists and the people who build uh, huge money-making uh, uh, companies don't want the public to know is that it takes a team and that it's not just one superstar who you can worship and adulate as the absolute uh, uh, creator of this magic that you hear on the screen. And uh, it, the, same, the same as a, a, a director of a film, the director gets all the credit. Uh, that was the auteur theory of, of uh, film directing uh, that came up especially in the, in the 60s. Um, but it's just not true. It takes a team of people. You know, every, everybody is important. Now, some people are not as important as others. But I make the point very uh, simply that when you hear a record like Dancing in the Streets, it's a classic, huge hit, uh, Martha and the Vandellas, and the first thing you hear on the record is you know, and that, that brings in the, the, the record and then she starts singing, calling out, around. okay, well, who wrote that bop bop ba da da bop? I mean, that is a catchy melody that as soon as you hear that, that makes you get up and dance. That's the hook. That's what we but used to call traditional the hook, the hook. And it comes back later in the record and you wait for it and you're happy when it comes back. But who wrote that? Well, it wasn't the songwriters. It wasn't the artist. It wasn't the producer. It was the arranger, a, a fantastic arranger called Paul Reiser. 
and and you know all these guys at Motown, they had a team which I talk about in my book of of guys who were available literally twenty four seven. Those Motown studios um, uh, were were actually recording twenty four hours a day, and and it would be just like the production line uh, for Detroit Cars. They would be churning out this stuff and they needed a team of crack musicians, which they had, of crack producers, which they had. And they weren't producing crack, crack right? No, 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 not indeed. <laughs> but I think that that started probably in the 80s. But uh, uh, back in the 60s, you know, these were professionals and they had an incredible band. They had in an incredible team of songwriters, but what they also had was a team of arrangers. And that, that team included great, great artists like Paul Reiser, uh, who also co-wrote what became what becomes of the brokenhearted, uh, and and uh, guys like David Vandepit, who who uh, did the arrangements for Marvin Gaye. You know, everybody uh, raves about how wonderful what's going on is, but if you listen to what's going on, uh, it's a it's a nice melody and nice lyric and and all that but if you listen to the arrangement what lifts that song from just being a kind of an easygoing uh, soul song with an undercurrent of social commentary is this incredible string melody wall to wall from the very beginning of the record uh, a melody which you remember as being part of the counter melody of the thing all written by David Vandepitt now <clears throat> Motown arrangers did not get credit for their work because Barry Gordy, the head of the company, uh, didn't want the public to know two things. Number one, he didn't want pub the public to know that there were actual arrangers who were helping create the Motown sound, so he never gave the musicians or the arrangers any credit. He was afraid somebody would steal the Motown sound. Another thing which he didn't want was he didn't want it known that there were a significant number of white musicians and arrangers who were working for Motown. And their image was that of the young sound of black America, the sound of young black America. Uh, but of course, there were a lot of white musicians uh, uh, included and David Vandepitt, for instance, was white. Uh, not that I, by the way, give one tiny toss whether somebody is black or white. I, quite frankly, I think it is, the one major thing that ruins any kind of artistic uh, appreciation of anything to start judging it because it was written by a Latvian or by uh, a Serbo-Croatian or by somebody who is black or Chinese. I think that is a stupid, completely ignorant, uh, horribly destructive, anti-artistic way to judge art. However, I'm just saying this was the history of it. So now moving back to your question deftly, um, we, we then come to LA in the 60s. There is a brilliant musician uh, named Jack Nietzsche, who is working in the uh, studios there. He came, he, he came there as a composer uh, who was very, he loved the music of Wagner. He loved the hugeness, the bigness of Wagner. And so he used to, when he came to LA to write uh, arrangements for, for people like Sonny Bono um, and, and others, um, 
he worked a lot for Terry Melcher as well. Uh, he said, okay, well, I want to use two drummers, three drummers. I want to use three, three keyboard players, three guitars. Um, and, uh, and then he said, I want to use huge choirs like Wagner. I want to use timpani. I want this big orchestral sound. And he used it on records well before a young man called Phil Spector came to town from New York, a talented guy, no question. And it just so happened that <clears throat> Phil Spector heard about him and had never done a record in LA before. So he said, oh yeah, let, let me meet this guy. And so he was introduced to Jack. And when Phil met Jack, first of all, they hit it off as people. They were both whack jobs. I mean, super talented whack jobs, though. And now, and now let me now let me define for our audience of listeners what do we mean by whack job? Because well, I mean they're both they were both crazy. They were over over uh, over emotional. Uh, they took certain substances, which you know were legal, semi legal, and not legal. Right, uh, and we know that artists do have their share of problems. Hence, maybe the Phil Spector questions of how he ended up later in life and some of the <clears throat> some of his notoriety for his well, out game. But go ahead yeah. with your. I mean, his 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 story is fascinating too. I mean, I'm not I'm not trying to take away from Phil Spector's talent, but I am trying to clarify the facts of how how the wall of sound was created. So let's talk about the elements of the of the wall of sound. Number one, the elements are this incredible reverb. It's a it's a kind of a definable, recognizable reverb on records. You immediately know it's a, it's a wall of sound, Phil Spector kind of sound. But who gave that to him? First of all, Jack Nietzsche said to him, hey man, the hip studio to use is Gold Star Studios. They've got this incredible reverb. They've got an echo chamber down there that is just magic. So you want to use that. Okay, cool. Now he says, and by the way, I need some musicians, Jack. What do I do? Oh, I've got this fantastic group of musicians who were later called the Wrecking Crew, but they include Hal Blaine on drums and, and all kinds of people. My friend Don Peak on guitar and Barney Kessel on guitar and all these tremendous people, Carol Kay on bass, all these wonderful musicians who, who definitely had a, a major influence in creating that sound. And by the way, what did they play? They played little dots on paper written by, yes, Jack Nietzsche. And then Jack would say, hey, I want to get a choir in. And I, I like to use a double choir. And I used to, I like to use a huge string section. And by the way, I really enjoy using timpani. Big, big. And so Jack, and Jack said that to Phil. And Phil said, yeah, I like big. Yeah, let's go big. Let's, let's do it. So all of the elements of the wall of sound sound were created and given to Phil Spector by Jack Nietzsche. Interesting. And, so, and yet Jack Nietzsche really doesn't go down in the corridors of history for being the inventor creator of the Oh, not at all. Sound. Not at all. And, and he, by the way, Jack later re, uh, achieved his own uh, fame as a musician for writing many, many great film scores. Uh, which he, which were wonderful and had a, had that, that sort of certain sound that he invented. He did a wonderful uh, 
album called St. Giles Cripplegate. He uh, he, he was he was a, a marvelous composer, and of course he he had one hit called "The Lonely Surfer," um, uh, which you know was put out under his own name. Uh, but there you are, you know this is just the kind of thing. But there are many examples throughout pop music history. So, what would be another example as exam as as an example extracted, say, from your book, "The Invisible Artist," of what we would regard as a common denominator of social acceptance as far as uh, an artist or a producer, somebody who's really widely known for some example of what they had done or created or gave to the world, and there was really somebody else who was responsible for that. Can you give us any other kind of an example? Well, I mean, a, a really in-your-face obvious example is the Beatles. Now, George Martin not only deserves credit as their producer and the guy who signed them when nobody else would. I mean, that, that gives George Martin his place in history already. But then let's talk about the one credit that George Martin never once received on any Beatles record, and that is Arranger. You will notice very clearly that there is not one arranging credit ever on any Beatles record. Now, that is just mind-blowingly, uh, it's, it's just completely insane. Well, I mean, we know, we know that uh, George Martin actually was the keyboard player on uh, In My Life, and well, he, everybody yes. said, you know, hey, how are you going to do this? And they needed like a uh, harpsichord sound, and he actually recorded it, but he recorded it at half speed to make sure right. he could play it, and then he right. sped it up so it would fit to the record. But that's kind of an unknown credit that he was actually the keyboard player on that as well. But you're right, that, as far as that, the arrangement. That's true. That is true. But, I mean, he played keyboards on many of the records. McCartney wasn't a bad keyboard player at all. But when they wanted something a little bit on the classical side, they'd ask George to do it. But, but more than that, think about the, some of the biggest Beatles records with those fantastic orchestrations and for and fantastic arrangements it, i can't even the list is too long but all those beatles records that has strings and brass gotta get you into my life um strawberry fields my god uh you know the the all these things george martin did not receive one credit as a ranger and not only that there was a book released about oh 15 or 20 years ago which is called the beatles complete scores and in that book, not only are, is George Martin not credited with the arrangements that he did for those songs, but even the people who transcribed the arrangements from the records, the copyists, the people who, who, who did that, were not given credit. And now I'll tell you the big kicker of why this is. Back in the days of Tin Pan Alley, the law was codified that every single note that an arranger wrote on any record was owned completely 100% by the publishers of the song and the original songwriters. So the song comes out and it says, written by George Gershwin, when in fact a considerable amount of it was number one arranged, but also certain backing lines and, and other additional counter melodies were written by the arranger. And that has continued for the whole 
a history of popular music. And why was this law installed? Well, I'll tell you why. Because the songwriters and the publishers did not want the arranger coming along saying, hey, wait a minute, I wrote ba 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 da da ba which is a which is a lead melody and i would like to have some credit for that and they said forget it every note you wrote is owned by us yeah, and it's you, a work for hire i guess it's they would a work for hire which is a which is a sickening concept very unfair and anybody with any sense of of justice or common decency would know that this is a a, a money grab and a way of disenfranchising you know, it's, uh, hard-working it, it, artists. Yeah, no, I get that. You know, it's funny. Um, one of the largest smash hits ever, uh, Celebrate by Cool and the Gang. Sure. And I know very well, you know, Diodato, who we all remember from the 70s and his sure. power disco pop hits. But mm -hmm. Diodato was their executive producer and their arranger producer. Right. And that hook on the song, which is the hook of the song yeah. celebrate you know ba 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 da 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 you know that yeah. hook they never came into the studio with that that was all diodato and again he may have gotten paid by warner brothers and he may have the executive production and but again at the end of the day it's completely exactly and it's completely yeah. associated with cool and the gang and nobody knows hey that hook that header was absolutely the work of the, in that case, the guy who thought it up and the arranger in, in Diodato. So I guess it's the same thing. There are, there are so many examples of it, and I've only scratched the surface in my book. There's another great story, which I think shows this in graphic terms, of an arranger called Bobby Martin, who was one of the big Philly arrangers. And he was a terrific arranger, and I, I got to interview him for the book. And he told me the story of a, of a record that he made uh, which I can't remember the name of the original record, but he had written this fantastic arrangement for the song. And what they did was they didn't like the lead vocal on it, so they took it off and they just released the backing track as the thing. And they renamed the song The Horse. Oh, and, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Sure. And, they, and they gave him no credit at all. They released the song, just the backing tracks, and he got no credit for the horse. Bobby Martin received no credit for the horse, and, and he heard this thing, and he called them up, and he said, hey, wait a minute, I, I wrote all that. Why, why am I not on there as a songwriter? And they said, well, you're not. It's, you just did the arrangement. And they said, but there is no song. There are no lyrics. There's no melody. So what, what part of it has, have you written? And they said, goodbye. And they hung up on him. Wow. So in many ways, the arranger is the ghost or the invisible well, artist behind yeah. the artist, as exactly. you just expressed. Okay, that's really cool. So let me get into some of the artists, of course, that you have worked with, because you've worked with some pretty prominent names. I mean, just a few. Uh, uh, just a few. You've worked with Paul McCartney, Ray Charles, James Brown, Randy Brecker, Michael McDonald, of course, you know, J okay. Pat Metheny. So in working in the background behind these well-known prominent names, stars, how are they the same and how do they differ? Like when they actually contact you, like let's say Paul McCartney, everybody, of course, he's the most popular man in the world. He comes to you, you come to him. How did that transpire and what was that unique situation with Sir Paul all about? I had just finished doing a record which had come out and was a big hit called Slave to the Rhythm for Grace Jones. And Paul was working with the producer of that record, Trevor Horn. And he had had, I think Trevor produced one or two tracks on 
the album that he was doing at the time. And Paul had a great group of tracks which he had never finished. Um, it's, a, it's a rather well-known project that people talk about as a legendary sort of project called Cold Cuts. They were cuts that he never finished. And so they were cold and Paul wanted to finish them. And he went to George Martin and he said, hey, George, I've got all these tracks. Will you come and, and help me finish them? And George Martin was heavily involved in another project at the time. And he said, you really should get somebody else. You should try to maybe get that guy, Richard Niles, who's doing a lot of work at the moment. And then Trevor Horn said, well, if you're looking for somebody, you should get that guy. The guy who did Slave to the Rhythm was Richard Niles. So that's how I got the call. And I met Paul in his uh, office, McCartney Publishing Limited in Soho Square in London. And it was our first meeting. And he had sent me his recent album that he did, which had loads of co-writes with various people, such as Elvis Costello and Eric Stewart and a lot of different people. And he asked me what I thought of the record. That was his first question. And I said, well, Paul, it doesn't to me, sound very much like what you would expect on a McCartney record. And it sounds like a lot of the tracks were experiments. And, uh, you know, some of the experiments worked and some didn't. And then I looked at his face and I realized, what did I just say? Yeah, not the right thing to say to Sir Paul. <laughs> except, that it, except that it was, because he looked at me quizzically for a moment and then smiled and he said, you know, I'm glad you said that because that's exactly what it was. It was ah. an experiment. He said, you know, ever since John died, and remember at that time, 1986, maybe. Yeah. It was pretty close to when John died. And he said, I, you know, I've never had that feeling of being able to write with somebody else, just two guitars looking into each other's eyes and writing. Yeah, that connection and, was lost. Sure. And, and so he said, I tried it with a bunch of other songwriters. And he said, that, you know, sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. And he said, that's exactly right. He said, but I'm glad that you said that to me because, you know, whenever I do anything, most people around me, they just say, oh, great, Paul, you know, wonderful. Yeah, fantastic, wonder, you know. And he said, I know that it's bullshit. And he said, I, I'm going to enjoy working with you because, you know, you're not going to be bullshitting me. And later on, when he started playing me all the tracks to, to work on, he was saying, okay, what do you think this track needs? And I said, well, this track definitely needs some real drums or it needs, needs a new bass part or it needs a, you know, whatever. And then on one of them, I looked at him and I, I, I was talking about the track and I said, and of course, you'll want to redo the vocal on this track. And he looked at me as if I had just murdered his entire family and said, what? What's wrong with the vocal? Well, how can you say that? And, and, then, and then, of course, I, after a moment of panic, he started laughing again. He said, no, that's all right. I'm just bullshitting you. That's, that's fine. I'll redo the vocal. But, so he obviously has a sense of humor. That, oh, hell yes. You know. Oh, hell yes. And, you know, when I started working for him, a lot of the people who I knew who had worked with him said, oh, be careful. He's really difficult to work with. He's, you know, he's, he's a, he's wants to be in total control. He never lets anything alone. He never does, lets anybody do anything. And so I was kind of dreading it, but I got to tell you when we went in the studio I was, you know, he had asked me to co-produce these tracks and get them done. 
So, yeah. you know, whatever I wanted, he said, fine. I say, I need it. You know, I need 40 strings for this one. I need, you know, a, a brass section, I need whatever it was. And great, you know, it just all got, and very little meddling because one of the things that you find with artists, sometimes artists appreciate and understand that they've hired you for something that you can bring to the table. Because as I said at the beginning of this interview, everything, everything that you hear on records is a result of teamwork. It's not just one guy. Some artists know this, but some artists don't know it. And they, they think that it's all got to be them. And it's all got to be. And so they hear something that they don't understand. And they say, oh, wait a minute. What's that? What's that strange sound? Well, actually, that strange sound is a woodwind quintet. Oh, but I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't like that. Let, let's get rid of that. And, and so that's what you find. And with Paul, it was really the opposite. He knew that the tracks needed something. And he said, okay, that's a great idea. That's terrific. Great. Marvelous. You know, that's, so, that's, that's really the cool thing about artists that you can tell significantly. I think the greatest ones, aside from what they might be known as from their promoted temperament, or what their media journalism promotes them as, as far as their branding or their iconism. Many right. of them really are open to the idea that they understand that to make art, you have to be sub subjective enough to mirror what's around you. And that includes getting great ideas from all of these influences that you've brought to you. I know yeah. that when you yeah. mentioned this, I sat in the offices of MPL in New York, and I was actually making a, a presentation and MPL and McCartney was actually very, very open to the idea. I was very just thrilled just to be sitting in the office in New York. I said, how many people would be sitting here? I can't believe it's happened to me. The other thing I was going to say about temperament, you know, people have a reputation belief about Howard Stern and, and that he was so slicing to people on the air. And boy, you were going to say, he's such a shock jock. He just rips everybody up left and right. I was, I met Howard. I was on the air with Howard and boy, you know, he has a reputation, but when you really get there and you're sitting with him, he's really just a sweetheart. He's a pussycat. He's calm. He's collective. He's very focused and calming towards the people around him. So, you know, I think the best of the people that do what they do well understand that they have to weave together the circle of input that's being provided for them. Well, indeed. I, and, and, you know, some people are more professional than others and some, some artists are more emotional than others. And there are two things to say about this. One is that it's very, very difficult for most artists to be objective. That you used the word subjective before. It's very difficult for them to be objective because they're there. And that is the very reason why they need producers. You know, a, an artist who thinks that they can do everything themselves without input, well, maybe that's possible for somebody who has tons and tons of experience. But I've even found, you know, with somebody like uh, McCartney, who has, you know, beyond, beyond talent, beyond any degree of, of professionalism, he's, a, he's marvelous. But he still, like anyone, needs somebody to say, yeah, that's cool. Or actually, could we do it one more time? And I, and I think that artists who don't realize that are the artists who fail. And I have had artists who I've worked with, and then they decide, okay, on the next album, we're not going to use you. We're going to go in a completely different direction. Of course, that's one of the stupidest things any artist can do is change their direction after they've had a hit. 
that's just career suicide and yeah. it always is yeah but but so so the objective thing every artist the the major thing that an artist needs to learn is humility and that's very difficult because their job is all about the opposite of it their job is about having an ego the size of jupiter but but so it's a, it's a delicate line to cross and some of them can do it and some of them can't the other thing that, that I want to mention is that my very first serious studio gig, my first actual work was as the producer for making artist demos at EMI Music. I, I became the, the kind of house producer there and arranger. So I had that experience, but then I worked with Cat Stevens and he was producing a great number of famous artists. And I noticed that every artist that he was working with, he acted differently. To some of them, he was very serious and very almost like a monk, you know, and, and some of them, he was actually joking around, telling fart jokes, you know, being crazy. And he was different with each person. I said, uh, hey, Steve, Cat Stevens, his real name, Steve. I said, hey, Steve, what, what is this? What are you doing? And he said, well, you know, every artist needs something different. Every artist is a different human being. We're all human. We all have different personalities. Some of them need somebody who's light, airy, doesn't, you know, take it all very seriously. And some of them, they need somebody who's really their, their guru, their father confessor. And some of them need a mother. Uh, it, it, you have to figure out what they need and give it to them so that they can do their best performance. So I thought that was that was something very interesting. And it's certainly something that I've learned from in my entire career whenever i've worked with any artists uh is i look at them as emotional human beings first and then i find out what they need to do their best job very cool with me dr richard niles the book that we've been kind of bouncing around on today the invisible artist which can be found on amazon rich you've written quite a few books i know you've got a lot for people in songwriting you've got adventures in arranging you have the pat metheny interviews on hal leonard generally speaking is there a place where listeners should come find your books that are available the easiest thing is for them to come to my website richardniles.com which is pretty easy to find and I have a lot of uh, pages on my books there or just go to Amazon all my books are available on Amazon in every country that's wonderful and I know you're also a crusader for arrangers rights but I guess those people that want to go ahead and follow you in those pursuits and I agree with you that the invisible artist behind the artist probably also needs to get acknowledged I've been uh, doing that through the organization ASMAC and I will continue to, to do that as much as I can. But, you know, in that, in that respect, I know that I'm fighting against big money because if arrangers get rights and get credit and get royalties, somebody else is making less money. So it's going to be a tough uphill fight. Well, that's the nature of the balance of all things. Thank you so much, Dr. Richard Niles, for joining me today. We'll look forward to hanging out again with you soon. Not so far down the line. Hopefully, when this COVID thing is kind of done, we can get together again. We'll actually go find our ways to have some coffee and make some music. Great. Thanks for joining us. Okay. Thanks, Ron.